All right, if you would take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. <clears throat> we looked at the first um, 12 verses last week, and I'm going to pick up at verse 11. Last week we looked at title of the message was, Is God Pleased With Me? And we looked at how all the children of Israel were passed under the cloud, through the sea, baptized in the cloud, and then Moses speaks of submission to, uh, to the Lord and to Moses, and yet many of them God was not well pleased. And, of course, they were overthrown in the wilderness. They never reached the land of Canaan. They never reached the place of victory like Caleb, what we heard of this morning in Sunday school, because um, they were not like Caleb. Caleb did what was in his heart. It wasn't just a head. It was a heart thing with Caleb, and he wholly followed the Lord his God. This morning, I want to look at verses 11 through 13, and uh, let's read that, and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, by the grace of God, uh, bring the message from there. Verse, verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them, for in samples they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, and when you see that word wherefore, you need to ask yourself what it's there for. So because of this, wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, there's another wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. The title of the message this morning is Common Trials for Triumph. Common Trials for Triumph. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the privilege and opportunity we have to open your precious word. Father, I pray that we will allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts this morning, that we'd have ears to hear, but we wouldn't be just hearers only, but doers also, lest we deceive our own selves. So, Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God, who is the author of this book, would take his word and penetrate our lives, bring conviction, encouragement, and admonition this morning. And might we conform ourselves in the image of our Lord and Savior. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think about this passage this morning, you know, verse 13 is, is, a, is probably a loved verse or a hated verse. Uh, but, you know, we, we always have to consider the context of, in which it's written, and so we need to consider the context here this morning. But I want to notice three things as we consider these verses. Uh, so I have three main points. There's an examples of admonition. There's an exhortation against self-confidence. And then there is an assurance of endurance in time of temptation. So, first of all, the examples of admonition. 
You know, Paul has said, you know, he was talking about the children of Israel in the first ten verses here. About He gave us the example. He's given the, the church at Corinth an example how the children of Israel had all passed uh, uh, under the cloud. They, you know, God, God had protected them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they had God's divine protection. They had, they had all passed through the sea. Uh, you know, and that was a matter of trust or trusting God to keep that sea congealed, and that word congealed means you know, stiffened or frozen or, or curdled like cheese so the, the walls will stay there. Because I'm sure there were some people that probably wondered, when's that coming down? When's it coming down? I mean, if I'd been walking through there, I'd have been wondering too. I'd have been looking at, you know, and there's a fish right here. Uh, you know, when's that thing coming back down? But so it, it was a matter of faith, believing God to go through that. And, and he said, so they were all baptized into Moses on the cloud and the sea. So they, they had followed Moses' leadership, of course, that was given him, ordained to him by God. But then it says, with many of them with God not well, not well pleased, they got into the wilderness, and there was trials and temptations every day. But many times they failed to trust God in those trials and temptations. And Paul, and, and Paul uses the word example in verse 6. And again in verse uh, 11, he uses the word ensample. That's the word in English there. But it means basically the same thing. And that word means it's a type, a dissuasive example. It's a pattern of warning. This is a warning to us. These are... These are this is a plural of ruinous events which serve as admonitions or warnings to others. So these, these are examples of admonition. You know, the word admonition means to call attention to. Look, you need to pay attention to this. God is calling attention to this, to these things. He, it's a mild rebuke or a warning. You know, the Old Testament is not just a record of the history of the nation of Israel. It is his story. History is his story. That's what history is. You see, it is a record of a holy God working with sinful man. These men were sinful. Can you relate to that? But it's an example of a holy God. It's a record of a holy God working with sinful man. And it is example after example of lives of real people, some of which humbled themselves and, and trusted God and walked with God, even though they suffered extreme trials and temptations, like Job. He suffered extremely. Extreme trials and temptations, to the point of the only thing he had left was his own life. And yet he would not deny his God. In fact, he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Noah. You know, how would you like to have been like Noah? Who else on earth was serving God? Do you ever feel alone? That there's nobody else around you, around like you? I mean, sometimes we feel like, who else is there? But how would you like to have been Noah? 
Because God said that every imagination of man's heart was only evil continual. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a loner in the world. But he trusted God. Or Joseph, who was hated by his brother and sold as a slave into Egypt, yet remained faithful to his God. And God raised him up. Moses, who as a baby was put in the river because he was supposed to have been killed. So his mother, not knowing what to do and, and trusting God that somehow God would undertake, put him in a basket in the river. Not knowing for sure what was going to happen to him. Of course, we heard about Joshua, Samuel, the little boy who was an answer to prayer to his mother, whom she took after she had weaned to the temple where Eli and his, and his two wicked sons served as priests. And in that, in, that, in that circumstances that surrounded him, he was faithful to his God. And Daniel, as a young man, taken captive into Babylon, made a eunuch. Do you realize what that means? He would never be a father. Made a eunuch. Faced extreme trials, even in his life. Yet Other examples of those that were saved, but yet committed terrible sins, and suffered severely for their sins. You know, Lot... Pitched his tent toward Sodom. And if I was just to read the Old Testament, I would have thought Lot was a lost man. But the Bible says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, that he delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. You know, he was a righteous man, but he vexed his soul. That word vexed means that he, he was vexed with grievous pains of body and mind. He was tormented. The picture is, is one, uh, one being questioned and, torment and, and being tortured. His own mind and his own body tortured him because he knew he was guilty. David, man after God's own heart, committed adultery and murdered to cover up his adultery. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 5, he says, When I kept silence, you know, when he tried to cover up his adultery, he said, My bones waxed old. He aged prematurely. My, for day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned to the drought of summer, Selah. And then he says, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my heart. You know, David suffered greatly for his sin. You know, that's a warning to us. There are consequences to sin as a Christian. And we have this idea in our world that God's just a, a, a big, fluffy, lovey Santa Claus type personality that overlooks and, you know, isn't that all that interested in everything, every part of our life. You know, that's a lie. 
Solomon, who was called the beloved of the Lord, married many strange wives who brought false worship into the, in the nation of Israel. And God did not judge the wives for it. He judged Solomon for it. Because Solomon was responsible. In fact, if you would read 1 Kings chapter 11, God raised up, God raised up adversaries against Solomon because of his sin. Hadad and Jeroboam. And there was a third one, and I don't remember what his name was. You know, we have examples of those who refused to submit to the Lord and were destroyed. You know, all the Canaanite nations were destroyed. Why? Because, because of their rebellion and their wickedness against God. But you know what? Rahab was one of those Canaanites. And God delivered Rahab. Because she trusted in God. And, you know, I was talking to a man this week, and he said, I have a hard time with Rahab. And I said, well, Rahab forsook her Canaanite ways. Because that's what a child of God does. You see, these are not just stories. These are examples of the fact that God is a holy God. He will not overlook your sin, but will judge and chasten us in righteousness. And that God of the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ. That rock that followed them was Christ, verse 4 tells us. You see, that God in the Old Testament is the Lord Jesus Christ, the new. He, did, he came. He, came. He, he did not come to replace the law with love. I read that statement recently online. He came to replace the law with love. That's a lie. He came to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17 says, Jesus said, I come not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Which means that until you realize you're standing before God, before the law, which demonstrates the righteousness of God, and, 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 and unless you understand that, your view of God is skewed. And when one repents of their sin, you know, admits they're guilty, and contends by, condemned by God's law under the wrath of God and deserving so, he establishes the law. You know, even Romans 3.31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? And Paul says, God forbid. In other words, perish the thought. We establish the law. And so really, when we, when we come to repentance in Christ, we're saying the law is right. The law is true. I am the guilty one. And Christ died to fulfill the law in my place. That's what salvation is. And then through him, I meet the righteous demands of the law. For the law says that we are guilty and we are cursed for God. But Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. He took our curse. So we established the law. And again, so we have these examples, these witnesses to the holiness and the righteousness of God. And if you ever never read the Old Testament, you are missing the encouragement of those who were faithful and the warnings of those who were not. They are living illustrations. That's why it's important you read your Bible through every year. You know, you can read your Bible in 45 to 60 hours. 
Now, 60 hours is 3,600 minutes. If you divide that by 365 days, that means 9.86 minutes per day, and you can read your Bible through in a year. And if you haven't read the Old Testament, you're missing out. Because when I read about Daniel and the lion's den, and you know what it does to me? It says, you know, God that did that for Daniel, he can do that for me too. If God did that for Abraham, and if God, if God chastened Abraham, oh, that means he's going to chasten me too. You see, these things are written for our examples. Upon whom the ends of the world have come. That means they're written for us that are living for today. Because the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. So we see the examples of admonition. There's, then secondly, there's the exhortation against self-confidence. And verse 12 says, Wherefore, in other words, knowing we have these examples, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. You know, one of the problems that they were having with Corinth with a lot of people was pride. They were proud of their intellect. They were proud of their knowledge. They were, they were proud and, 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 you know, it was causing divisions in church. And Paul says, look, you need to take heed lest you fall. If you think you're somebody, if you think you're standing, and if you think you're not going to fall, you better beware. Because you're in danger of falling. It's an exhortation against self-confidence. You know, these, these examples are grave reminders of a New Testament teaching. These examples we see in the Old Testament. You know, Philippians 3.3, 3, Paul said, For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. I mean, he was somebody going somewhere. He was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was believed to be a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a who's who, getting ready to be a who's who in Jerusalem. He said, I, if I have confidence, if anybody can have confidence in flesh, I could. He said, I have no confidence in my flesh. You know, it's a very dangerous thing to put confidence in your flesh. Because the heart is desperately wicked. Who couldn't know it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Your flesh is weak and deceitful. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1, or verses 1 through 14, Paul writing to the churches that were at Rome, he says, There is therefore now, and the key word here is now, no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He's not talking here to unsaved people. He's talking to saved people. And this is, so this is written to believers. And he says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free of sin and death. For what the law could not do is weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemns sin the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is, not, is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. If you're walking in your flesh, if you have confidence in your flesh, you will not please God. 
The flesh cannot please God. It is of the old nature. We must walk in the Spirit. We must walk in the power of the Spirit. And, and, and as we think about it, uh, let's drop down to verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh. In other words, we're not supposed to trust in the flesh, to live after the flesh. But if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Hey, if you're going to live after the flesh, you're going to die. And there were, we're going to see in a few weeks here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there were, there were brethren at Corinth who were dying because they were walking in the flesh. And they were participating of the Lord's Supper, walking in the flesh, and God shortened their lives. He said, many of you sleep. And many of you are sickly. It's a fearful thing to fall under the chastening hand of God. So in the context of chapter 8 here, there is, there is, there is no guilt. There's no chastening judgment of the Lord in the life of one who walks in the Spirit. But there is to one who walks in the flesh. And so we are not, we are warned against putting confidence in the flesh. And you know, when we fail to trust God, what are we trusting? We're trusting the flesh. You know, many times people think that a person that has confidence in the Lord is prideful. I've seen that misjudged many times. Now, in fact, we were, I remember we were at, I was out in visitation with another man, and, and, I, and this is still very vivid in my mind, and uh, we knocked on a door. And the other man, you know, we took turns, you know, doing the talking, so the other man was talking, and... Uh, and so he asked, a lady answered the door. And he asked, and I can't remember exactly how he worded the question about, you know, did she have knowledge or understanding that she knew that she had eternal life? And that he, she would die to go to heaven. And she kind of was taken aback, and she said, no, do you? And she was just like, do you? It's like, and, and she was, you know, her attitude was like, who do you think you are that you could know that? You must, you must be prideful or something. Well, you know what David said? Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes came upon me to eat at my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though an host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. And the this, the this that he's confident in is that the Lord is my light and my salvation. And the, the Lord will deliver me from mine enemies. You see, we need to have confidence that the Lord will deliver us through our trials. Don't trust in the flesh. Don't think you're going to stand. Don't think you have the strength to stand. To overcome the temptations and the tricks of the devil. If you have confidence in yourself, when temptation comes, you will fall apart and sin against the Lord. Like Saul. King Saul. You know, King Saul was a prideful, 
an insecure man who blamed others for his problems. You know, he, he blamed a lot of people. He called his wife, Jonathan's mother, a perverse, a rebellious and perverse woman. Now, I never thought about this before, and I was just thinking about this this morning, during Sunday school, actually. You know, I was paying attention, but, but this, this thought came into my mind, that he was, you know, in his blaming for others, he called Jonathan's mother a perverse, rebellious woman. You know what I believe? I think his wife was saying, Saul, you're not doing what's right. She wasn't in agreement with what he was doing in trying to kill David. And so he put the blame on her. And then he put the blame on Jonathan. See, he blamed everyone else. But he couldn't see his own prideful, insecure self. Yeah, that's what self-confidence does. When your confidence is not in the Lord. You know, Proverbs 3.26 says, For the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence, and his children shall have a place of refuge. That refuge is the Lord. It's the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse 15 says, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest shall be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And you would not. Look, if you would return to me and rest in me, you would have confidence. But you know what they were doing? They were afraid of the Babylonians, so they were going to Egypt and trying to make leagues with Egypt to protect them. Because they were afraid, they, they, didn't have, they didn't have confidence in God that God could save them. You know why? Because there was sin in their life. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 3.12, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by faith in him. 1 John 2.28 John said, now little children, abide in him. You know, to abide in him means to dwell with him, to to walk in in agreement and fellowship with him. That's what abide means, consistent fellowship. Abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so there's an exhortation here against. There's an exhortation or a warning Against self-confidence. What's in order is a third thing. There's the assurance of endurance in time of temptation. If you notice in verse 13, and, and, and notice what I said. There's an assurance of endurance in time of temptation, not against temptation, but in temptation. Now, Verse 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Now, a temptation, the word temptation is defined uh, as the trial of man's fidelity, integrity, virtue, constancy, etc. 
It could also be an enticement to sin. And the temptation, whether arising from desires or from outward circumstances, it could be come to us in the form of adversity, afflictions, trouble. It could be sent by God. And it could be a source of serving to test or prove one's faith, holiness, and character. You know, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, the Bible says, And the Lord did tempt Abraham. So what was the Lord doing? He was proving Abraham. The Lord knew what Abraham was going to do. But we do know that Abraham was tested a few times before that. You know, he came into the land. By the way, that land was Hebron, Mamre. That's Hebron, where Caleb said, I want that mountain. He came into the land, and God said, this is it. Look to the east, west, north, south. This is land. And a famine comes. That's a test. So he got to Egypt. You see, he didn't always pass the test. And so the Lord would give him a, another test. You know, when I was in school, if I didn't pass the test, you know what I did? I'd take course over. Now, they tell me that in school today, you know, they'll just push you on. Uh, I didn't have that option. My dad wouldn't tolerate that option. Uh, and I, so that never happened to me. But, you know, in God's school, and if you don't pass tests, guess what's going to happen? You're going to redo, redo the course. God ain't going to just push you on. He's trying to work in your life. See, and so in this temptation, there's a human element and there's a divine element. And I want to look at these. Briefly, verse 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. So this, these temptations are common to man. And the word common here means things that belong to man. And again, if you go through the lives of the people of the Old Testament, you'll find that there's every kind of sin, trial, and test, and temptation that has ever been imagined by man or happened to man is in there. You say, well, preacher, abortion's a modern thing. No, it's not. They were practicing abortion in Egypt, 1500 B.C. They were practicing abortion in China, 5000 B.C. If you don't believe it, go to Wikipedia. And there's other places. that show. There's other ways besides modern technology to have abortions. And they're not pleasant, I assure you. So, again, if you go, for example, at the Golden Calf, there was CCM music. It was the noise of war. Music with emphasis on the rhythm. They thought they were worshiping God. And they were dancing, which loosened their inhibitions, which resulted in nakedness, which resulted in fornication. That, friends, was in the camp of Israel. And God hated it. It made Moses angry. You know, the nations of Canaan. You know, you think about it. The children of Israel liked that music. It stirred their emotions. But we're not to worship the Lord in our emotions. We're to worship him in the spirit and in truth. 
You know, a lot of what we call worship today, or people call worship today, is nothing more than just an emotional high. In the nations of Canaan, there was every kind of sexual sin, from incest, molestation, to sodomy, to bestiality. Every kind. If you don't believe it, read Leviticus chapter 18. And that's why God said, you destroy every one of them. Man, woman, and children. Because they are a curse and a pollution to the earth. And we are bringing a curse and a pollution to our world with the things that are going on in our world, in our nation. There was sacrificing of babies on altars to Baal and Ashtaroth. So there was prostitution. After all, prostitutes don't want to have babies. And out of that, think of this, out of that came Rahab, a trophy of grace. Second Chronicles chapter 33 describes the sins that Manasseh brought into the nation of, of Judah. You know, Manasseh was just a spoiled boy. And when he took the throne, he refused to submit himself to the word of God through the prophets of God, and he did what pleased him. He defiled the temple of God. He brought false worship and immorality right into the temple. He brought prostitution right into the temple. And verse 9 of chapter 33 tells us he did worse than the heathens that were about him and that were before him. And he tried to incorporate all this into the worship of God. Again, the world's music, the world's drink, the world's morals. You see, what I'm saying is every kind of temptation is common to man. Man has had 6,000 years to experiment in the depths of sin, and there is nothing new under the sun. Not even your experience. You know, I used to think that nobody had experienced what I experienced. But you know, that's a lie. And what it did was prevent me from believing that God could understand and help me in my experience. And give me victory. Hebrews 4.15 says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tenth as we are, yet without sin. You know, that also means if he was tempted in all points like as we are, that he can deliver us from all points and give us victory over any sin or temptation in life. That's the human element. It's common to man. Temptations are common to man. There's also a divine element. Verse 13 again, there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now there's two thoughts here as we think about the divine element of this tempt of temptations. There's two thoughts. 
There's preventive providence and there's protective providence. Preventive providence, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. See, God in his providence knows your breaking point. And he allows situations into our lives that hurt us only to help us. Someone said this, quote, There is some dividend in every difficulty. The smart man is one who is wise enough to compel his difficulty to pay him that dividend, unquote. Brother Hoyle mentioned this morning that he has, what would you say, 2,000? 20,000 emails that he's kept from work. People told him to delete it. But you know what he's learned? There's benefit. He's learned by experience that there's benefit in keeping those emails. Because you can put things in historical context. You know, Brother Dave raises birds. He's had problems with sickness with the birds. But you know what those experiences have taught him how to deal with and how to prevent sicknesses. You see, if we will, the wise man learns to compel his difficulties to pay him a dividend to teach him. And God brings difficulties, he brings temptations in our life so that we might learn. You know, David said in Psalm 119, we read it this morning, we're supposed to be quoting it, it was good for me that I'd been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. You see, this is the preventive providence of God. Job. Job learned learned more about his Lord through his trials than he ever did in all his prosperity. Because Job said at the end of his trials in chapter 42, verses 1 through 3, says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered things I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. You know, Job learned more about God in his trials than he ever did in his prosperity. There's also protective providence. Uh, and the rest of that verse 13 says, But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, the phrase, you may be able to bear it, means endure it. Escape means a way out. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be a way out, but there's, the way out may be enduring it. That's the point here. And it, or enduring it until you get out of it. You know, Job endured his trial until the trial ended. And God greatly rewarded him for his faithfulness in his trial. But his trial did end. But I can assure you, as a man on a sin for earth, he had trials more, later on too. Because uh, they never stopped. But, but so, you know, this, this is the promise that God gives or the protection he gives. You know, Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.11, Persecutions, afflictions came unto me in Antioch, at Iconia, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. But out of the law, 
the Lord delivered me. In other words, I didn't get killed. <laughs> That's basically what he said, I didn't get killed. You know, Daniel was taken captive as a young man. As I mentioned earlier, he was made a eunuch. Very early on, in a foreign country, he's pressured to eat and drink things that God commanded him not to. But Daniel had purpose in his heart. He would not defile himself with the king's meat or with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Do you realize that was a life and death crisis? He was endangering his own head by asking for something other than what the king ordered for him to eat. But to him, it was more important. His heart was so sought after the Lord, it was more important that he obey God than live. And you know what? He was granted that which he requested. Not only was he granted that, but it was proven that it was better than what the king was giving. But you know, that wasn't the end of the trial for Daniel. It didn't long till they're seeking him out to kill him because the king had a dream and nobody could interpret it. So again, he has to rely on the Lord and seek the face of God for the answer to this dream that he isn't even told what the dream is. Again, a life and death situation. Because if he don't come up with the interpretation, his head is off. We believe it's God. And God gave me the answer. And we don't know what else happened to Daniel. We know when he was an old man. He's again challenged. If you pray to anyone besides the king, you're getting thrown into the lions. Again, another life and death. It meant sure death. But again, God intervened. You see, Daniel and Daniel, think about this. Daniel, God made a way for Daniel and throughout his life serving in a palace for at least three different kings. And there was even a nation change. You know, often when there's a nation change or a king change, the cabinet goes. The cabinet, some, many times they're put to death. Because you don't want any traces of the former kingdom. But not Daniel. Now you explain that to me. In human rationale. You see, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able. Somebody said this. You know, I thought of this. You know, God so worked in Daniel's life through the trials that Daniel became a spiritual Goliath. Somebody said this. Quote, the way God makes in the midst of our temptations, is not to escape them, but to bear them. God does not shield us, but sustain us. There is blessing in bearing our sorrows and trials in a noble way. 
God is not desiring a spiritual race of pampered children. He wants noble men and noble women. Christian nobility is not conferred, but is developed in the hardness and heat of trial. Unquote. Somebody said, to realize the worth of the anchor, we need to feel the storm. Unquote. Another quote, quote, suffering never stops at suffering. It comes out as wisdom, tenderness, refinement, and sympathy, unquote. You know, a smooth sea never made a good sailor. You, know, you may be here this morning thinking, well, you just don't understand my situation. You know, that may be true. But you're not the first and only one that's been in your situation. But let me ask you a question. If you had not trials and afflictions in your life, would you have ever humbled yourself to seek help from God? You know, there are people in our world today that we call snowflakes. Do you know there were snowflakes in the Bible? Manasseh was a snowflake. Manasseh was a spoiled brat, putting it bluntly. He was a child of a king's old age, a child of a king in a very prosperous reign, Hezekiah. He was born at the time when the Babylonians came, and he showed him all his gold and his silver and all his precious things. He, see, he was, a child, he was a child born into wealth and power. He never faced adversity. And when he took the throne, he refused to admit himself to God through the prophets of God, speaking to him. In fact, he persecuted him. And he did what he pleased, what he wanted. Second Chronicles 33, 10 through 13 says, And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, and they would not hearken. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among thorns. I mean, he got whipped with thorns and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, this snowflake got into affliction. You know what he decided to do? Maybe I ought to seek God, whom I've spurned in my pride and arrogance. And he besought the Lord, and the Lord heard him. And the Lord brought him again to Jerusalem. And gave him his throne back. In his affliction. You know why we don't see much turning to God in our nation today? Because we have too many pampered people. I mean, they have to have their safe spaces on campus. Lest they be offended by a different idea. How dare you disagree with me? I mean, they're offended if it's going to snow. Oh, we're having, you know, climate change. It's going to snow. 
You know, they make big alarm. Everything's a, an alarm. They can't deal with life. Why? Because they've been pampered all their life. They've never been taken to the woodshed and corrected for their wickedness. You know what Manasseh is saying? You know what the, the, the you know what Manasseh in the in the in in the, the example he's giving is saying to you and me, thank God for trials, thank God for your afflictions, because it's through those trials and afflictions that you will learn to trust him. Forsake him not. You know, Joseph said to his brothers, You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. You may think your trials and your temptations are all meant for evil. And there may have been evil intentions of people involved in your trials. But God has a purpose in everything he allows. So again I ask if you had not been through the trials and tests of life. You know, I look back at my life and I thought, if I wouldn't went through what I did, I don't think I'd be pastoring. I wouldn't be where I am today. So God is working. Don't, that's why James says, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptation, knowing the patience worketh faith, faith hope. So are you, how are you responding to your trials? Are you allowing God to bring forth triumph through them? Are you trusting him through your trials? Seeking his help. Or you can do like some others do. You know what they do? They blame everybody else. You know, verse 14 says, I don't have time to get it. says, Wherefore flee idolatry. You know what idolatry is? Is when you turn away from trusting God and turn to your, trusting your own self. And that's responding in a wrong way to your trials.